is a gift to me from my father-in-law. I married my husband. I dated him for two years. Had I known about his father, I told him I would have married him way sooner. <laughs> when I, when I um, met my father-in-law, it became very obvious that he was such a genius, and everything he said was so brilliant and so unexpected and so interesting and so true. And I never heard things presented the way he presented them. And I realized that I must get as much as I can from him. And I, he was semi-retired. He had a, a factory with his brothers where they made hospital gowns. So I, he was semi-retired. So I was able to sit with him twice a week and he would teach me. The reason we're doing this topic tonight is A, it's, it's, it's a brilliant presentation and it's all his. And B, he just died. And for an elevation for his soul, the greatest thing you can do for someone is teach their Torah. More than praying for them and more than um, learning the Mishnah, which is a very common thing, to teach their original Torah is the greatest thing you can do for their soul because it means they live on in ideas that change people and motivate people. And one idea can change many, many lives. Yours, your children, your grandchildren. So, um, so this topic is the topic of the invisible. The, um, when we say the invisible, what we're speaking about is that which you do not think, what you do not say, what you do not do, that which nobody can see. The fact that somebody does not say something nasty to someone, no matter how much they want to, is totally invisible. They're just sitting there. Nobody knows what's happening. We have another word for that which you don't do or think or say. It's that which is forbidden. Now, forbidden is not the kind of word we like to hear, certainly not in Western culture. There are words that make us feel good inside, such as what? Give me a few words that make you feel all warm and fuzzy. Words. Love. Love. Empathy. What else? Hmm? Compassion, fuzzy, huh? Friendship, loyalty, all these nice words. What are some words that immediately make you, you know, kind of like to get your stomach tight in a knot, make you tense, make you resistant? What would be some of those words? Put you on guard, make you defensive. What would those kind of words be? Judgment. Judgmental. Blame. Terror. Right, terror. Right, that kind of thing. Well, what about this phrase? You're not allowed to. You're forbidden. You're forbidden. Everybody else can, but you're not allowed to. It's wrong. It's a sin. You're not allowed to. You can't. Okay? That doesn't make us feel good. We don't live in the kind of culture that we accept that. Why not? If it's not something that makes sense to me and that I can see it's it's damage, why would I uh, be forbidden? So what we're going to speak about today is that entire area of life, which is all the things in Judaism that you're not allowed to do. Now, the surprise is that we have a lot of behaviors that we have to do. We have 248 mitzvot that you need to do. They don't always come up all the time. Some don't even have to do with every Jew. But as a total, there's 248 mitzvot that you must do, positive commandments. But there's way more. There's 365 violations that you must not um, commit, that you're not allowed to do. The entire area 
of the forbidden, the asur. The Hebrew word is asur. Asur means you're bound, you're held back, you can't, you can't, you're limited. That's what we think, tied up, asur. The whole entire area of the isurim, that which is asur. But there's another name for all of the things you're not allowed to do. And that whole top, that whole category is called Kedusha. Kedusha is what we call in English holiness, but we'll have a better definition soon. Kedusha, being holy, is being bound. It's about all the things you're not allowed to do. So before we start exploring the idea of the forbidden, we're going to make a general, we're going to state a general principle. When God created man, God said, which means God made it discoverable, because when I speak, okay, it's so that an idea that's in my head now is known to you. That's called, that's, you know, humans speak, we verbalize, we say words, which become sentences, which convey thoughts, which now you can discover what was in my head. When we say God speaks, we means he, he means he made his will, or she, she, there's no gender here. God made his will discoverable, okay? In the very beginning of the Torah, God said, Man will be created like me, just like God, in my image. God is entirely free, unlimited, unrestricted, creative, correct, independent. How in the world can people who are mostly restricted, bound, right, you know, limited by what they are not allowed to do, be anything like God? We are all forbidden, and God is entirely free. Who forbids God? No one. So how are we like God? So what we're going to suggest tonight is that the isurim, the prohibitions, are exactly what free us and make us creative. Okay. Let's start with something that has nothing to do with Judaism at all. Here's a thought experiment, okay? I say to you, I am so thirsty. Can somebody please bring me water? Hey, Nicole, can somebody please bring me water and a glass? So a good-hearted soul comes running over to me with a big bucket of water and a block of glass. What is the problem? I want to drink water. I have a big, huge bucket. I'm not a horse. I'm not going to... And I have a block of glass. What's the problem? Oh, you can't... Why isn't there anything to pour it in? Okay, so what's it? What is? What does it mean? What's it missing? A vessel. What's the glass missing? A hole. A hole. Exactly. In other words, when I say I want glass, what do I actually mean? I want. I want a. Yeah. I want a hole. Okay. I want nothing surrounded by glass. Correct? Isn't that what I want? <coughs> I want emptiness. I want a space where there's nothing there, and surrounding it to demarcate that space, I need some glass, okay? The emptiness, the hole, is, the, is vital to the, you know, the entire you know, entity called the glass. It's just as vital as the glass itself. Now, we're, we don't generally think about the hole, but the glass manufacturer is very conscious of the hole. In fact, they make emptinesses of all different shapes, correct? Depending on what you'd like to drink, you get a different shape emptiness. Would we say poor, frustrated glass manufacturer 
It's so limiting. They're not allowed to. They're forbidden from putting glass inside that empty middle part. Not even one sliver. That's how restrictive it is. That's how, that's how, that's how extreme it is, right? Not even a sliver of glass in that where the empty space should be. We don't think about that as limitation, as restraint, as being forbidden. Right? We think about that as the necessary you know, components of emptiness and glass that have to be properly, you know, working, you know, uh, um, you know, properly in, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In, con you know, in, um, ah, what's the word? In, you know, congruent with each other, in working together exactly, you know, perfectly designed in order to make the glass that we want to, that we, you know, that we can use, right? So far, so good. Let's take the same example with music. Who's musical here? All right, anyone seen a sheet of music? Good. So what if on that page there was one unbroken note that never stopped? Let's say you had an orchestra with 10 different instruments and at the sound of go, each musician played their instrument one ongoing, unbroken tone. Would you have a melody? Would you have rhythm? Neither of them. Okay. So how do you have rhythm how do you have a, a melody? How do you have any type of music? It's not one unbroken note. What is it? Hmm? A whole bunch of notes. A whole bunch of notes. What's the difference between a whole bunch of notes and one long note? But think about a sheet of music. Each note has to come to each note has to come to a end, and then what's between one note and the next note? A pause, a silence, a space, correct? Those spaces in the music are crucial to the music. That's what makes the music. Sometimes you have a piece that the music suddenly stops for a second or two seconds, and then it begins again. What's the point of that pause? What function does that little silence serve? And what does it do for the music itself? That's right. When the music starts again after the pause, there's more drama, right? There's more, it's more intense. The, the spaces between the notes, the silences are part of the music. They must be there. Now, we might not be tuned into the silences, but the composer most definitely is. The composer is very carefully choreographing the sounds and the silences. And the way a great player plays is based on the sensitivity to the sounds and the silences. So would you say that the composer is so unfortunate, they're so limited, they're forbidden from putting as much music as they'd like to into the piece they have to hold back and have like these pauses where they can't, there can't be any sound and it's it's so restrictive. Would that be, right? Would that be, in, in a, you know, some type of, uh, would you feel bad for the composer about how, unfortunately, they're forbidden doing what they really want? Of course not. Of course not. The same idea ex exists in art. Anybody figure out how? Let's say in a classic painting. Classic painting. You're, you want your eye to go to a central focus on the painting. So what do you do? The absence of color. It's called negative space. Negative space. 
Okay? Let's take this idea into relationships. So far we're showing, and it's like this, there is no area in life, any, there's nothing, there's not a single corner of existence, nothing you will find in any aspect of existence, the physical, the psychological, the emotional, the intellectual, the spiritual, nothing that breaks this rule, that everything is created by a composite of what we add and where we hold back. Here's a random example, a chemist. We, what would we think about a chemist who walks into a lab, puts any, takes any random chemicals off the shelves, mixes them in any random quantities, heats them on any heat? What are you going to get from it? You're going to waste a lot of money and chemicals and time and maybe even explode the place. We, when a chemist works, they take only two grams and not three, and they're meticulous about it. And they mix it with only four micrograms and not three or five, and they put it only on a certain amount of heat for precisely a certain amount of seconds. It's not only about what you're doing, it's about what's not being done that produces something of value. Let's, baking. Hmm? Baking. baking. A little too much of something. Here's, let's go into relationships. Okay. So you say to yourself, I have a dilemma. I, it's, 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 it's plaguing me. I don't know what to do. It's very important in my life. I need to find someone to talk to who I can trust who has good judgment. So you ask your friend, who do, I, who do I talk to about this? And they say, you know what, go to so-and-so. Let me tell you, this person will listen to every word you say carefully, focus entirely on your situation, understand the background of it, get ask you all the pertinent questions, do all the research that you need to help you figure out how to handle this. Um, they will call you up to check on you. They will, they will not leave you till you come to a resolution. They will um, be incredibly patient, give you as much time as you want, as much attention as you want, and they have excellent judgment, and you can, uh, you can really make sure, you can, you can be sure that speaking to this person will give you tremendous insight and direction. So you go ahead and you speak to such a person, and everything is true, you're elated, you can't believe your good fortune that you met this person and they were a gift from heaven and they helped you sort things out and set a, set a, go, you know, set a course, set a path for you and you don't know what to do to thank this person. You just don't know how to express your gratitude. So you go to sleep, you're thinking, what can I do to say thank you? You wake up in the morning, you open your Facebook and surprise, this person went ahead and broadcasted to 10,000 people Oh my God, you have no idea what so-and-so just told me last night. Everybody now, now knows. It's not only about what you do and what you say. It's very much about what you will not say, correct? Where you don't say things that are not meant to be heard. Where you don't betray a person's confidence. I would argue that that person who went to, you know, this friend for advice, would have forfeited all the good advice and all the attention and everything she gained from the conversation just to avoid the humiliation of what happened the next day, right? You'd rather not have all the good stuff to avoid that, that terrible, you know, you, you know, experience of now having your whole life out there, right? So it's not just what you say. You're very much a, a product, You're, your value as a human being is very much 
a product of what you don't say, okay? People who say everything cannot be trusted, hurt people, okay, have terrible judgment, don't understand basic human needs, okay? And so, and so clearly, and certainly nobody wants to be around them, and so clearly we're seeing that what has to be front and center in a person's mind is my limits. Would you say that that person who doesn't betray their friend, imagine the same scenario, except the second one doesn't betray their friends. Would you say that that person who's not broadcasting it the next morning is so limited, they're forbidden from blabbing it to the world, they're so restricted, they must be so frustrated? No, not at all. They understand what goes into being a good person and a good friend. Correct? Okay, let's go further. What about this, another type of relationship issue? Marriage. So the husband, we'll just make the guy the bad one because it's so cliche to do that, but okay. So the husband says, I don't know why my wife is so angry at me. Listen, I give her all the time in the world. I give her all the money. I listen to her when she talks to me. I love the same types of entertainment she loves. We go out all the time. I'm helpful to her. She can count on me. If she needs me, I am there. I'm devoted to her. I, I check up on her during the day. I, I just do everything for her. She wants me to cook. I cook. I clean. I don't know. I'll do everything for her. I'm very, very affectionate to her. I show her all my love. Why does she hate me so much? Why am I sleeping in the car? So he neglects to mention one little technicality. He also behaves this way with another woman. What is trust in marriage based on? What you do for your spouse? No, it's not. Trust in marriage is not based on how good you are to your spouse. It's based on the trust. Trust is based on knowing confidence that your spouse knows who they're not married to. That they are not married to any other woman, no matter What's going on in the marriage right now? My wife got fat, she got ugly, I'm annoyed at her. She was in a car accident, God forbid she's a paraplegic. She got wrinkled, she's annoying the heck out of me right now. It doesn't matter. I'm still not married to anyone else, and therefore, there are certain red lines that don't get crossed. That conviction is what marriages um, are, are, you know, are survive on. Now, we have a bracha that we make under the chuppah. Sounds like a very technical bracha, and it is. It says, Baruch Hashem, which is, means we acknowledge and we accept and we appreciate that you have, and the bracha says, you have forbidden to us all others and permitted this one. In other words, part of the awareness of marriage is everyone else is forbidden. That is front and center because it's so easy to forget that. Right? So, marriages are called Kiddushin, Kiddusha. Would you say, oh, it's marriages are so limiting. Maybe people would say that today. They're so restrictive. It's terrible. We can't have open marriages. No. We know that to really bond with somebody and develop real, deep, lifelong trust means is de- demands exclusivity. That's it. So, this is Kiddushin. Here's another, another example. This is one that's often misunderstood, and that is the modesty issue. So 
So modesty is often seen, especially in the summer. Winter, it's not such a big problem. But in the summer, it's thought about as restrictive and annoying and, and limiting because we, the laws of modesty essentially are that you keep yourself covered from basically the sexual parts of the body, so where are the demarcating lines, so there's, there's nothing particularly sexual about an elbow or a knee, but they're cutoff points for the upper body and the neck here, and uh, everything else should be covered. So this is perceived as, again, forbidden, restrictive, easy, it's an Easter. What is it? What's really going on here? Are we really, is Sneo at modesty about covering? I want to suggest it's not about covering at all. You see, everybody has a body and a soul. Okay. The soul is that part of you that makes you very, very unique. It, is, it inspires you. It tells you that there's more to devote yourself to than to yourself. Okay. It tells you that you're here for a purpose. It drives you to find that purpose. It makes you crazy until you find the purpose. It tells you that you are not, not interchangeable with anyone else, that you have something to contribute, and you have unique abilities that must be expressed. Those are the messages of the soul. Now, every person is totally unique in this way. We also have bodies. It is true that our bodies can and do contribute to certain amount of our individuality. Obviously, if somebody's particularly gorgeous and tall and graceful and it's going to contribute to their personality. And also, if somebody's deformed in some way, you know, disabled in some way, has some, you know, it will definitely contribute to their personality. But, let's say we took a hundred tall, gorgeous, slender, you know, blonde women, okay? And we took a picture of them, naked. Cut off all their heads. You wouldn't even find yourself. That's how not unique your body is, okay? Your head is a little unique because it has a face, but your body is not unique at all, okay? There's not much variety. There's a little bit, a few inches this way, a few inches this way, a little bit this, a little bit that, some dark, some blonde. There isn't much variety. There's some, but what we're trying to say is what really makes you unique is not your physicality. What makes you unique is your soul. Now, the other difference between body and soul is that what makes you unique should be something that you control, that you can grow, that you could shape, that gets more beautiful with the investment you put into it. Those don't describe your body. It gets worse no matter what investment you put in it. Trust me, take, me off, take my word on that one. It um, is not in your control. Here, we'll do an experiment. Do not metabolize the french fries I just ate. <laughs> grow me blonde hair. Your body doesn't listen to a word you say. Okay? You're not its boss. It doesn't get more beautiful with age, and you can't protect it from outside factors harming it or damaging it. You're, you're helpless. Your body can be damaged against your will. However, the soul is entirely in your control. You can beautify it. You can increase its power. You can develop it. Nobody can harm it, not even the Nazis and your announcements. Nobody can ruin your soul. Nobody can turn you into a different kind of person than you want to be. And it doesn't get worse with age. It gets better and better and better with age. Now, the problem is this. Of course, none of us are stupid enough to want to be treasured and considered loved and cherished for our bodies. That's a ridiculously risky game to play. Anything can happen to the body. 
And by the way, just recently was speaking to a Hollywood producer, and he said that uh, he said the most worth. This is what he said: the most worthless commodity in Hollywood is a 40-year-old woman, unless she's playing some old lady in a movie. Okay. So having someone love us for our bodies is it's a it's it's a bad idea. So we'd like people to love us for our souls, but how are we supposed to accomplish that? The soul is invisible. Now, it is true that the soul is invisible, but the effects of an active, vibrant soul on a person are not invisible. If there would be one part of your body that a glimmer of your soul shines through, where would that be? Your eyes, the eyes in the mirror to the soul. Your face means your expression, you know, your softness. Look at the difference between Trump's face and Carson's face. You see the difference? You know who I'm talking about? Right? The doctor, Dr. Carson, who's running for president, like his sweet, angelic face, and then you look at my right? And it's insulting, nasty, okay? The, the effects of your soul come through on your face. And we, in fact, in Hebrew, panim is panim, same word, the inside. What we need to figure out a way to do is we need to figure out a way to bring all the attention to the neshama, to the soul, on the face. How do you suggest you bring attention to the real person, to the soul of the person, to the face of the person? You distract attention from everywhere else. You distract attention from the parts of the body that are distracting. Why are the other parts of the body distracting? Because they're meant to be distracting, so people should be attracted to each other, and the world should go on, <laughs> and people should have children. That's why it's that's why it's distracting. It's very good, but when you meet someone and you want to create a relationship with someone and you want someone to value you, that's not the equation. The equation is how to get them to know me and to appreciate me and to feel who I am by experiencing a little bit of my neshama. And so, tzniyut modesty is not about covering anything. It's about revealing your soul. So would you say, oh, it's so restrictive, you have to cover everything. We're exposing the neshama. We're bringing to the, to, the, to the stage the real part of us. We're letting people get to know us in the way that you know, has the best chances of them really appreciating us forever, whatever happens to the body. Does this make sense? Not like everything else, like the music, the hole in the glass, the negative space in the art, the what we don't say, right? The lines we don't cross, how we don't portray ourselves, right? It's all not. We said we can't be like God if we're limited. God's not limited. He's creative or whatever. I don't like using genders, but it's God is creative. God is expressive. That's what we're, we're, all of these things make a person greater, more expansive, more valuable, more able to create, to contribute, to be useful, to do something good in the world. More able to be God-like. Give one more example, then we'll take questions. You have a question? I just have a question on the cause it's going on the clothing round because then it's kind of interesting. Like if it really is like, I know I feel like it's like another body and what to work together because then it's like why wouldn't we all be wearing like the burkas you know because then it's, it's a very good question that. because <laughs> the face the
covering of the face, which the Arabs do, is the ultimate disgrace and violation of the soul. When they cover the face, their message is, you are female. Female is sin. There is nothing salvageable about you. You are sin, you are temptation, you must be covered. There's nothing to gain from you. You do not have a tselamilokim, a likeness to God. You're just a female. Couldn't they make the same argument that they're preserving their No, no, because the face, we are exposing the face. Now, we don't, we don't believe in cover. We don't need to cover the arms and the legs. This is because the arms are what you build, you know, your hands are what you build with. It's what you do with your ideas, and your legs are where you go, and what, what takes you places and advances you. We're only covering just the distracting sexual parts of the body so that people can get a chance to get to know us. We don't believe in covering the whole body. Just those parts that, are, that will cause us to like kind of veer off and not get our focus right. It's very, it's very tailored. Their message is not that at all. Their message is there's nothing about you that's, that's kosher. Nothing. I have seen in Paris women with muzzles, Arab women with muzzles. That's how bad it is. And, um, and of course, fully covered. It's a discrediting of the, of the godliness in a person. Here's another example. Shabbos. Have you all kept the Shabbos yet? The laws of Shabbos are such that all the things that we associate with Shabbos are not laws in the Torah about Shabbos. In other words, dressing nice, having a meal, having two chalas, make, um, having the, uh, this, the, the, um, the singing, it's all not in the Torah about Shabbos. The only thing in the Torah about Shabbos is one mitzvah, which is to make kiddush. Again, separate. Kiddush initiates the prohibitions of Shabbos. There are 39 types of forbidden labors, creative labor. If anybody keeps Shabbos and they learn it, they'll realize there's a gazillion details too. So many little things, but you get used to it. It becomes natural. But, um, but everything that... But, but when we think about Shabbos, we think that all the things we're not allowed to do, that we're forbidden to do. If you take the 39 malachot and you divide them up, they break down into three categories. Basically, the pursuit of food, the pursuit of clothing, and the pursuit of shelter. Your survival needs. We are not allowed to be engaged with any of them on Shabbos, which means our food must be prepared in advance. Our clothing must be prepared. There's no washing, sewing, ironing, dyeing, nothing. Our clothing is prepared in advance. And our shelter, wherever we are, is prepared in advance. So what happens? Suddenly... We light the candle, point. what's going on? Suddenly we realize we're not busy taking care of our urgent, very necessary survival needs. We're done. It's all prepared. It's all totally taken care of already. Now that I'm not busy worrying about my food, my clothing, and my shelter, guess what happens? I can start thinking about other things my soul can start emerging a little bit. I could start thinking about what's, what's really important. When I'm not in a frenzy about my, my, my very important, and you know, I'm not belittling them, my, my very important uh, day-to-day survival issues, you know, survival necessities. Suddenly, I begin to think differently. I feel differently. 
It's quiet. I'm not doing anything. My kids are here. My friends are here. We can talk. We can think. That's why then we sing. We speak, tell, talk about Torah. Talk about how everyone's doing. This is all happening because we have been liberated from those things that are constantly driving us, you know, pushing us, taking over our minds. Shabbos is built entirely, entirely off what we do not do. Then we dress nicely, we go to the shul, we have these nice meals. But if you were stuck in an airport and you didn't go to shul and have nice clothes, who cares? You're still keeping Shabbos if you don't violate any of the prohibitions. Does Shabbos limit us only to someone who has no clue, has never tried it? Shabbos is not restrictive and it's not limiting. Shabbos gives you time to breathe and expand and reorient and, and regroup and re-nourish yourself. Everybody needs Shabbos. I don't know how anyone in the whole wide world survives without Shabbos. Shabbos is not limiting. Shabbos is the ultimate opportunity to find the part of you which is expansive. So all in all, you could go through a million more examples. There is nothing in the Torah that limits us for the sake of limiting us. If there are things the Torah says, don't think, don't say, don't speak Lashon Hara, don't betray a person, don't lie, don't harm a person with your words, don't tell a person your judgment on why they're suffering and why they deserved it, okay? Don't point out a person's flaws for their own benefit, etc., unless obviously it's your child or somebody who you have to do that to. Not that they listen, but, um, but uh, unless they ask for, you, for it. In other words, don't speak. Don't, don't do things. When the Torah tells us what not to do, the Torah is giving us guidelines for how to be the most expansive, creative, godlike, unlimited people. But there's no such thing as expansion and creation without, you know, without, without a balance between what we don't and what we do. The whole entire area of Kedusha is the area of the invisible. Kedusha is totally invisible, holiness. Kedusha is the things we don't say, the lines we don't cross, the thoughts we don't think. Just figure this out yourself. If somebody hurts you, you could let yourself be consumed with negative thoughts, which will eat you up inside, maybe even use up all your money when you want to take revenge and you turn you into a bitter person. Or you can say, this was a terrible, terrible thing the person did, but if I would have done something so callous, so selfish, what would I want people to, how would I want people to react to me? I'd want them to say, that was really creepy, but you know what? She's not entirely unsalvageable. She's not the worst person that ever lived. Let it go. She'll learn. She'll live and learn. She'll learn a lesson. She'll, she'll grow up. It was a mistake. She's not, you know, she'll, you know, give her time. Uh, you know, I don't have to be her best friend, but, uh, you know, generosity of spirit, even for people who make mistakes. And uh, and then you don't eat yourself up inside, and you don't get consumed with jealousy and I mean, with revenge thoughts and bitterness and anger. And you're a, you're a healthier person, and you're a more forgiving person, and you're a happier person. And you don't get high blood pressure, and all the other physiological reactions you get to anger. Anger is, a poison, a drink, uh, anger is a poison you drink to hurt somebody else. <laughs> it never works. So, um, 
So this is, there's no area in life that is not a composite of what you are doing and what you're holding back. The part you hold back is entirely invisible. Nobody knows what you didn't say, what you didn't think, what you didn't do, okay? Nobody knows any of it. We don't live in a world where the invisible is popular. We live in a world where you broadcast every single thing, including this cup of water, take a picture, I'm drinking water. Seriously. We live in a world where everybody has to know every little thing, but the most important part of building yourself is done entirely in private. Now, you could have a close friend who you can speak to about what you don't do and what you don't think and what you don't say. But no one, it's awkward to go out and go, does everybody know all the Lashonara I didn't speak today, I didn't play with this one? No one, it's just stupid. No one's going to talk like that. So it ends up, by definition, being personal and private. And that's the part of us that's the discipline, the invisible part of us, that turns us into great people. Nobody will notice. Maybe when you're 50, someone who knows you for 30 years will say, you know, come to think of it, I don't think I ever heard them speak disrespectfully to their mother-in-law. It'll take 30 years for it to maybe dawn on someone that what, all the things you never said for 30 years. You know what I mean? No one's ever going to notice. <coughs> but that's the area of growth. The most important things are invisible. You have to have eyes that begin to see the invisible. You begin to see and notice those people that hold their tongue, that are patient, that don't jump to conclusions, that don't overstep their boundaries, that give everyone else their space to, that with restrain their own abilities to take over something or take control of something or take credit for something, and they restrain it so other people can also have their, their moment. Slowly but truly begin to pick up on these things. And these are the people that everyone does cherish and does love and does want to be around. These are the precious people. These are the... These are the great people, the people that are extremely aware of the, the, the negative, we'll say, the non, what isn't there. How the Torah, I'll end with this idea, then we'll take questions. The Pasuk in the Torah says, the verse says, Kedoshim to you, be Kadosh. Ki Kadosh ani Hashem because I, God, am Kadosh. Where do we see God being restrained? We just said God is creative and all this restraint makes us creative. But God says, I am kadosh. I am restraint. You be restrained because I am restrained. Where do we see God's restraint? Everything. Hmm? Everything. Or else it would be like open miracles. God's restraint means that, like a good parent, when the child is figuring it out slowly but surely over the years, the parent does not jump in every single time the kid is about to make a mistake and fix it. Okay? does not jump in every time the kid does something that's humiliating for the parents okay? and, you know, and, and, and uh, have a temper tantrum and you know, make sure everybody knows this, you know, you know, what's right and wrong and how this isn't representative of the parents. The parent lets the child make mistakes, embarrass them, okay? <laughs> violate things that they, hold, you know, that they hold dear, trample on their value system for a while. Who knows what the kids is. That's what kids do for a while until they emerge with their own value, you know, and they kind of go through that phase where everything has to be, the, you know, they have to explore and experiment and make their own mistakes. And, and, uh, and a good parent holds back because it's a necessary process. 
not entirely holding back, but Hashem, God does too. Here's Hashem, we're all walking around in Hashem's world. Most of the people, or maybe a good amount of people are saying, as they breathe God's air and look with their eyes and walk with their legs and eat God's food and sit under God's sun, they go, there is no God. And besides, even if there is, I have no obligations and I'm not, and I can do what I want. And I, <laughs> and Hashem holds back. Why? Why does Hashem hold back? So we can live and we can learn and we can emerge and develop ourselves through our own trial and error. That's why God holds back. So other people can also live. God can overwhelm everybody. The reason we hold back in all areas, we don't take other people's property, we don't take other people's money, we don't take other people's pride away, we don't take other people's parnasa or income away from them, we don't sabotage them, we don't ruin things for them, right? We hold back. It's not survival of the fittest. It's the exact opposite. The stronger, the smarter, the more equipped to survive, the ones who have the power to dominate hold back so other people can also live. That's what America is based on, Jewish values. That's what America is based on. America is not a nation like Germany, where, right, where survival of the fittest, might makes right, back then Germany, will to power. America is a nation built on Jewish values, which is, if you're stronger, that doesn't give you any right to impose yourself on someone else. Right? So, um, all of this restraint allows people to live, allows people to be free, allows society to flourish. What are we most terrified of today? Those forces that want to take away all our freedoms. Right? So, um, so this is the area of the invisible, of Kedusha. Right? This is the area we have to work on, by ourselves, quietly, in every way. Every time we, we face a, any particular situation, we ask ourselves, what do I do? What don't I do now? Right? What's called for and what is not called for? So I'll end with this example. We'll, we'll compare the artist and the sculpture. This is my father-in-law's example. Everything you just heard, he told me, pretty much. The artist and the sculptor. <coughs> How does an artist create a, a painting? Let's say it's, it's you know, traditional painting. One that's so good it looks like it's three-dimensional. has so much depth. One brushstroke, ten brushstrokes, a hundred brushstrokes, a thousand, ten thousand, I don't know, a million brushstrokes. Eventually it's something spectacular. It might even look like it's real. But what, what does the sculptor do? It starts with a block of marble, a slab of marble, and then what? Removes. Removes, 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 removes. And what le what's left in the end? The David by Michelangelo. That's right, a real three-dimensional human-like, you know, three thing. In other words, we have all the things we do, but we have all that's the mitzvahs, the assays, what we call the mitzvot assay, the mitzvahs we need, things we need to do. But then there's a whole area in life which defines us, gives us all our spiritual contours, and you know, cr you know, creates our identity. And that's like the sculptor, all the things that are not allowed to remain part of our behavior, of our, of our personality, of, our, of how we operate in the world. Right. Okay, questions? Or comments? I'll have, I have a question. 
what about a person's thoughts that are invisible that are negative? We are and meant to try to to think in ways that are that are not negative. There's a lot the Torah tells us how to think in positive ways. So first of all, one of the most positive ways you can think, something you have to tell yourself and God willing your kids every single day, three little Hebrew words, gam zu latova. This is also for the best. That doesn't mean be passive and just accept any problem. Doesn't mean if somebody's diagnosed, say, okay, it's for the best. No, you go to a doctor. But whatever the particular challenge is, as you're working through it, can build you, can add dimensions of strength and understanding and sensitivity, and therefore it, it also, this too, is for the good. Very important, mental hygiene. Second of all, never really judging. We don't really know the person's situation. We don't know if we were in that exact situation, what we do. Not judging doesn't mean not having standards and not demanding certain standards, but it doesn't mean tolerance of every single thing everybody does. It doesn't mean that, it just means you, it, when, you, know, you can't judge a person who doesn't live up to certain standards or can't bring himself to meet those standards for whatever reason. Only, we don't know. It means you become, a, therefore, a, a, a forgiving person, a person who always recognizes a simple truth, which is nobody wants to be a failure. Nobody wants to be hated. Nobody wants to be a loser. If people do things that make them all those three things, <laughs> there's, there's, they haven't. They were thinking something. It's 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 unfortunate. It's not you know you try to help people. Um, you know, Torah tells us how to think in positive ways. Torah tells us about anger. It's virtually, absolutely, positively forbidden to be angry because it comes from fear that you're losing some status or position or opportunity and that means you don't trust Hashem that the situation you're in or even losing a job or whatever it is has some benefit so why do you need to be angry? Um, you can act angry for purposes of like educating your children but you're never allowed to actually be angry so what about when you like when you what? Like, I've heard, like, if, God forbid, you know, like, you lose, like, a loved one, and you're, like, I heard a quote, she, and this woman, and she was like, I understand that this is from Hashem, but it doesn't mean I'm not so angry with Hashem for taking right. it nope. away from that's not how you're allowed. You're not allowed to talk like that. You're absolutely not allowed to talk like that. And the reason you're not allowed to talk like that. parent, too. Yeah, but, but the anger is destructive. What's the point of being angry? Hashem still runs the world. You might as well say that everything Hashem does is for the best and know that Hashem loves everybody, and then you don't feel, you're not eaten up with misery. It's, it's I just, just feel like it's inevitable sometimes. Hmm? Like it's, it, it is. Some people do feel that, but, they, but, but it's self-destructive to let yourself feel that. And it's so much easier to say, I don't understand Hashem, but just because we don't understand how Hashem conducts the world doesn't mean Hashem doesn't conduct the world. We have a whole entire sefer called the Book of Job that deals exclusively with this issue. And sometimes what Hashem wants from us is to stop trying to understand it with our brains. Our brains are limited, but our hearts are not limited. Our hearts can love without limits, but our brains are limited. We can't understand everything. Hashem says, your brain is limited. Stop looking for you, to your brain for explanations. Go to your heart, which has no limits and open it up 
and you'll be you'll you'll feel close to Hashem, even if there's tzaras. And but that has to be taught. That has to be taught. But it's so much healthier to live like that, and it's the true way to live. Now nobody is judged. The Torah says, "Ein adam nitpayes, ein adam nitpas beis, ein adam nitpas b'shas tzaros." A person is not held accountable for what they say when they're suffering. That's why the entire Sefer Eo, where he expresses his bitter complaints against God, he's still considered a tzaddik and still part of Torah, even though the book would have been banned if it wasn't in, in, in other religions for its heresy and sacrilegious <coughs> complaints against God. In Judaism, it's part of Torah, because a person need not suppress necessarily their feelings, but the point of Eo is not to vent. The point of Eo is the message, which is that these feelings did not help him. They undermined him. There was a better way for Eov to react. This was wrong. The book of Eov is to teach you what pitfalls to avoid when you're suffering. So could I just say, because like, could it, there's this whole thing about how when you feel a certain way, then when you get to the other side of it, you really can understand it because of how you were feeling before. So I feel like if you feel that anger, even initially, and you yes. calm yourself down, and you get to the point where you're like, Okay, I know that wasn't positive, but I needed to go through that. You can, you can, you can have an initial feeling of it. You can even, like we said, like you express it. But there is a path through it, just to wallow in it. Which is, let's be, I'm glad you clarified that. To wallow in it is not to, you know, to reject suffering as unjust and wallow in the anger. That's 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 what you really. He wasn't angry. He was just so confused and bitter and he wanted to die and he never said something that was a you know blaspheming God, denying God's power or justice, but he was just so bitter, he wanted to die already, he wanted to all kinds of things. You'll see in the book if you read it, but um but uh then there's a path through it. You get past that. And you go to a place where you stop thinking like that. So I'm still trying to, I'm like, I guess I'm thinking through this idea of like invisibility. And like you were saying, like our culture is, you know, show everything, like be ostentatious. And like even I feel like we're encouraged, like professionally, like you need to be extroverted and like be the one that stands out, all these things. Like, so. And I guess like there, like you're saying, there, you know, you can go 30 years without saying something negative to your, you know, whoever it is. So there's no like instant gratification to this. And no, I wouldn't say that. Every time you assert a certain self-control, you do feel empowered. It's like a diet. When you really stick to it, and you don't eat those things that are bad for you, first of all, it's liberating, and it's empowering. So, but it's a private victory. It's just a private victory. I'm not talking about like when you are, you feel taken advantage of that you weren't able to stand up for yourself. That's a bitter, horrible, toxic feeling. That's not that. We're talking about when you choose to hold back with your tongue or your thoughts or whatever. You choose to hold back for good reasons. Not when somebody takes advantage of you or dis, you know doesn't respect your wishes and violates some of your wishes. Now, what do you do in that situation? What do you do, and trust me, when you have kids, this happens a lot, they will go ahead and 
without you know, sensitivity, do something that will hurt you and will violate or be, a, you know, be an affront to your values, to your priorities, to how you raise them. And now this person is, in a sense, your opponent. So with your child, you generally have the kind of um, the background of, you know, of loving and seeing the good in a child that you're able to immediately switch into, well, they're young, they're impulsive, they're, they, it's not really to hurt me, it's just because they don't care, they just want to do what they want to do, and they're not thinking about the collateral damage, it's not a personal affront to me. So all those things you click into when you love somebody, all the excuses you make for people when you love somebody, that's exactly what we're supposed to do for other people. Now, you're allowed to love your family more than you love everybody else. You are. You are. And, uh, but still, those type of ways of thinking are supposed to you know, help us not be consumed in anger and frustration and rage every time somebody does something against their will. So I, I guess like going off of that, like how do you find that with someone that's not like in your family or somebody who's whatever, Somebody keeps hurting you, right. and you have no—you know—you don't need to stay connected. But if you're stuck in the relationship, right. um, you can put up your—you know—barriers and defenses. You can—you can make boundaries and limitations. It's not nothing be walked on. It's nothing be walked on. It's—it's um, it's choosing to be strong and disciplined and self-controlled. Um, in you know, as as a as a way of giving other people the opportunity to make the best of themselves and becoming for yourself a stronger person. But it definitely does not mean when you once you've learned your lesson that somebody's going to harm you in some way that you expose yourself to that if you don't have to. And you can definitely in communications you you offended me or whatever I feel offended. Please don't do that. All of that stuff. The main thing is this. There's a few things that absolutely infuriate people because they feel that they have been violated. Okay? When somebody is not taken into consideration, they are in, enraged. Enraged. That someone who knew me, who knew that this was important, without thinking, without caring, just did something that was so inconsiderate. How, how could they? That's coming from a very healthy place of knowing that I matter, that I'm, you know, that I, I should be valued, that I should be appreciated, it comes from our feeling like we're God, you know, we tell we are God-like, and God should be valued, and God should be appreciated. So when somebody is inconsiderate to us, it's very hard to tolerate. One of the healthy tools that work, say, hmm, well, God also should be taken into consideration and also should be treated with respect, and also should not be ignored. And I basically ignore God and treat him with disrespect and violate his will, and, you know, all the time. And what happens? He, t he swallows it, tolerates it. So you know what? I can tolerate it too. We have a rule in the Torah, the way we operate with others is the way God will operate with us. So if we are always kind of like dismissing, forgetting about God and doing whatever we want as we breathe his air and eat his food and walk on his earth and etc. We it's not right. But if we're the, if we're as generous to others, 
when they violate our, you know, our rights, so to speak, then God will also be generous with us. It's a very important rule. Every single one of us is everyone else's peer pressure. When they see a person not answering, not responding, they, they, they pick up the message. Maybe they get defensive, but the message slowly is, you know, is, no, is discoverable. So everyone is everyone else's peer pressure. Don't be afraid to be peer pressure in a positive way.